How many of you, we live here in Southern California, right? That's where we are. They have earthquakes here, don't they? How many of you have an earthquake kit? Maybe I should ask that again. How many of you have an earthquake kit? Maybe you didn't hear the question. Wow. We moved here in uh, 1991, 24 years ago, and uh, moved from another part of the country where the ground doesn't shake. And uh, when we got here, one of the first things we did was to, or that I did, was to assemble an earthquake kit. And I assembled a good one. I mean, I had bandages for sucking chest wound. Uh, I had a body bag. That whole deal. Food, water. Um, why? Well, because earthquakes can happen. And they can be devastating when they happen. And, and they come basically without warning. And no one that lives in this uh, part of the country is immune. We hadn't been out here all that long when the, uh, the big Northridge quake hit. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it knocked us out of bed. People died. I think there was probably a, uh, a surge in earthquake kits following the Northridge quake. I'd imagine they began to uh, grow stale and dated as mine has grown stale and dated over the years. I was looking at it the other day and, and realizing that uh, some of the expiry dates on some of the product in my earthquake kit had, um, was long since uh, passed. But, but I didn't feel the sense of urgency that I once felt. Kind of a sense of complacency, perhaps, even has crept in. Yeah, there's earthquakes and, you know, there, a big one could happen. But, you know, it hasn't happened, and I've got other things to do, and places to spend my money, and my earthquake kit has deteriorated. I bet if I were to ask you how many of you who have earthquake kits, has your earthquake kit deteriorated from which you first assembled it, I, I bet a lot of you would have to acknowledge that too. The rest of you, um, you need to either move or get an earthquake kit. <laughs> right? Or make friends with somebody who has one. Open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. I have entitled this morning's message, Expecting the Unexpected. Expecting the Unexpected. Of course, the context here of Matthew 24, and we say this almost every week, but it's important to keep it in mind, so I'll say it to you again is that these are the words spoken by Jesus to his disciples privately on the western flank of the Mount of Olives as they looked back over the city of Jerusalem following Jesus' confrontation on Tuesday afternoon with the religious leadership of the nation. They have totally and completely rejected him, and thus he has rejected them. He has called the nation to decide who will they follow. In fact, he will give them Wednesday and Thursday to make up their mind 
Friday, it will be quite clear. He predicts the destruction of the temple and with it the Jewish way of life. His disciples come and ask him about that. He, he speaks about that event and through that event to the future for the nation of Israel. The terrible times to come upon the nation in the 70th week of Daniel. The time of Jacob's trouble. A time we know as the tribulation. He says these times will be unlike anything that has ever happened. The prophets of old speak of this time coming in. It's called the day of the Lord, a terrifying day, an awesome day. A day when men call for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of Messiah. It's an awful time. Jesus warns and says that each generation needs to be looking and aware of this reality that hangs over them. And that when it comes, it will be too late. The door will slam shut. When Messiah returns, he will divide, he will sift, you will be in or you will be out. You will be welcomed into his kingdom or you will be excluded from his kingdom into outer darkness where there will be wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. This reality hangs over each and every generation. He's speaking here in chapters 24 and 25 primarily to the Jewish people. That doesn't mean that we, as a predominantly Gentile church, have nothing to learn from this. There is much we can learn and much we can apply. Biblically, theologically, the church of Jesus Christ will not be present in those days. The scriptures speak of Christ coming for his church. It was promised in John 14. It is foretold in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and other places. He will come. He will rapture his church. He will will take his church to be with himself. The dead in Christ shall rise first, Paul says. And then we who are alive and remain will meet them, join them in the clouds. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So the Christian church will not go through this terrible, awful time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. That doesn't mean the Christian church is immune from trial and and, uh, persecution and difficulty. I think one of the problems with American evangelicalism is we've sort of convinced ourselves that we can live a a, a fat, middle-class American life and everything will be good and fine. The Lord will snatch us up and we'll just go on into eternity, just one big happy event. I don't think the scriptures promise us that at all. In fact, Paul says for those who are godly, there will be persecution. I think we should expect it. But there is much we can take from this section, certainly by way of application. 
And so as these messages, as I bring these messages to you, understand that uh, these are speaking to Israel. In particular, they are speaking to to the generation of Jews alive at the time that the 70th week unfolds. But there is application, to be sure. Let me read for you, beginning at verse 32 of chapter 24, and get a running start at our passage this morning. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This morning, verses 42 to 51, as the text we'll look at, in that we find two ways to prepare for the unexpected. Two ways to prepare for the unexpected so that we will not be found wanting at the return of Christ. Now, the return of Christ for us, as I said, is not the return spoken of here. So it is an application point. The return here is the return at the end of the 70th week, the end of the tribulation, the time of the establishment of the Messianic kingdom in which a great sifting and sorting will occur, a judgment. The judgment is spoken of in chapter 25, verses 31 to the end of the chapter, as it applies to the living Gentiles at that time. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38, speak of the sifting, the judgment that will come upon the nation of Israel at that time. 
The one taken, the one left, the one taken, the one left. Those taken are taken into judgment. Those left are those who enter into the kingdom following those judgments. That's the general view. But it doesn't mean we can't learn. If Jesus is is at the door, he says, here in the sense of his second coming, he's even more so in terms of his coming for his church, for which there are no preceding signs, no necessary prophecies to be fulfilled. So there's much we can take and apply from this. What he says to them is, is doubly true, if you like, for us. So here it is, two ways to prepare for the unexpected. Number one, the first way to prepare for the unexpected is to stay awake. The first way to prepare for the unexpected is to stay awake. Beginning this morning. To stay awake. Therefore, verse 42, therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Notice that therefore, the beginning here, verse 42, Paul is drawing a conclusion, or Paul, Jesus is drawing a conclusion from what he has just said. In light of what I have just said, therefore, you know, there's something that has to happen, something you must do. In light of what he has just said. Well, what has he just said? What he has just said is that to be unprepared for the return of the Messiah brings dire consequences. It it brings about a, a judgment like unto the judgment of Noah. When the flood comes, the the door of the ark closes. You're in the ark or you're not in the ark. If you're not, you are swept away. In light of that reality, the serious eternally serious consequences of being unprepared for the, for the unannounced return of Messiah, then Jesus is warning people, therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. The verb is a present active imperative. The idea is continually be on the alert. And it is an active verb. There's, a, there's something happening here. There's action involved. In the be on the alert. This statement here, this be on the alert, this is is a applies to, to every single generation. The generation, verse 34, that 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 sees the signs begin, he says, of the is the one that will see it through to the end. But no generation knows because no man nor angel know when the time will be. Therefore, every single generation must be on the alert. It must characterize each generation. We are to be active, actively watching, not merely aware that Jesus might come. We're aware that we might have an earthquake. He's saying to be active, to be alert, to be, to be engaged with this reality that Jesus might come. Now, the reason it has to be in all the time active watching is, is simply this, is they don't know when it will be. They don't know 
No one knows exactly when he'll return. Here in the 70th week, there are signs to precede it. I went over that with you a few weeks ago, right? There is the abomination of desolation and the midpoint of the tribulation. There is the very sign of the return of the Son of Man himself with his Shekinah glory. There are signs, but of the day and the hour, no one knows. No one knows. No one knows exactly when he'll return. So they must be watching, actively watching. Jesus has said he is coming. He says that heaven and earth will pass away before my words pass away. This is a promise. I am coming. The disciples look when he ascends up, right, in Acts chapter 1. And the angels say, what are you looking up there for? He's going to come in the exact same way that he went. Therefore, ignorance is no excuse. You can't plead ignorance. It doesn't wash. You see it over in chapter 25, by the way, at the judgment there of the, of the Gentiles, where Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, right? And the goats, um, they say to him, verse 44, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? They're they're trying to plead ignorance. And there he says, no ignorance allowed. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Be on the alert. Stay awake. Verse 43, Jesus illustrates this with a statement about a burglary. Verse 43, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. This is an illustration. It's a a story that we can identify with. Its purpose is to point out the need for constant vigilance, to constantly be awake actively. And it's simply this. If you knew in advance, if you had advance warning that somebody was coming to break into your home, you would prepare. It's as simple as that. You would prepare. And if you didn't know exactly when they were coming to break into your home, you would stay up all night. Right? It's kind of common sense. And that's exactly what he says. The thief doesn't know exactly on, you know, what time of the night it'll be. So he stays up all night. He stays constantly awake. Simple enough story. Conclusion, verse 44. For this reason, for this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. He is coming. He's just coming at a time that he hasn't announced ahead of time. He's not merely said to you, don't worry about it. I won't be there for 26 and a half years. He's coming. That's all he tells you. Be ready. I'm coming. Could be any time. For this reason, there's a point of comparison here. The point of comparison is the unexpected nature of the thief's visit to the return of Christ. That's the point of comparison for this reason. That's what it's talking about. That you don't know when the burglar is coming. You don't know when the thief's coming. You don't know when Christ is coming. 
In fact, it becomes a New Testament metaphor for the return of Christ, right? He comes, what? Like a thief in the night. Paul picks up on that. He uses it over in 1 Thess chapter 5 and verse 2, and it's used in a couple other places as well. Jesus comes like a thief in the night. Where does that expression come from? It comes from the mouth of the Lord himself. Okay, the point of comparison. Now, here's the interesting thing. A, a, a thieves never announce their intentions to come. Right? They don't, they don't tell you ahead of time, hey, you know what? I'll knock your house off next week. Thieves survive and thrive on, on secrecy. Jesus has announced it. He has said, I will come. My word is more reliable than the sun rising and setting. I will come. And when I come, for the unprepared, the consequences will be devastating. Devastating. Therefore, what? You have no excuse. None. No excuse to be unprepared. You need to be awake. These people need to be awake. Beloved, we need to be awake. There is no excuse. We need to be ready to meet the Lord at an unexpected time. So the first way to prepare for the unexpected is to stay awake. To stay awake. The second way is to serve others. Stay awake, serve others. Two ways to prepare. Verses 45 to 51, serve others. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who then gives the idea that, that, that he's, he is drawing out, a, he's asking a question And he's asking the question based upon what he has just said in verse 44. He says in verse 44, for this reason, right, that it could come at any moment. You don't know when he's coming. You need to be ready. In light of that, let me ask a question here. Who then is the ready one? What does it look like to be ready? You got to be awake. But what does it look like to be awake? What does it look like to be ready? How do we know if we are ready for the return of the Lord, the anytime return of the Lord? How do you know? How do you know? The answer that Jesus gives here in verses 45 to 51 is, is simply this. Are we serving others or are we serving ourselves? Isn't that interesting? He says that this is how you know whether you're ready. You will know whether you are ready for the any time, unexpected return of the Lord, any moment, any time in your life, by how you are conducting your life. Basically, is your life other-oriented or self-oriented? Are you other-occupied or are you preoccupied? That's how you'll know. That's how you'll know. And so he does it here in, in, this, in this little story about a slave. It's actually, some, some writers think there are two slaves here. I don't think there are two slaves here. I think there are basically um, one slave that can act in, in one of two different ways. That's the point. There's a comparison between how a slave acts in the same conditions, the same circumstances. Now, a, a word or two about slavery, just because, uh, well, because we need to know. 
Slavery it, uh, was, was common in the ancient world. It was common. It was not like unto American slavery, the brutal, despicable American slavery when, when people were kidnapped and, and uh, brought and sold like so much chattel. Just a, just a wicked, horrible time in the history of this nation. Slavery in the ancient world was different. Now, it, wasn't, it could be brutal, to be sure. But slavery in the ancient world, the way someone became a slave in the ancient world was typically in one of several ways. One, they were either a prisoner of war. You became a prisoner of war. If you were captured in battle, you became a slave. You could be ransomed out of that slavery if your family or friends could raise the money. You could sell yourself into slavery in order to avoid destitution and poverty. You could be born into slavery if your parents were slaves. Those are the ways that essentially one came into slavery. The ancient world depended upon slavery in the form in which they practiced it. The slave class, particularly in the Roman world, was an educated class. They were educated people. They were doctors. They were teachers. They, they were proficient in finance. They, they could oversee homes. They, they would you know, you know, manage a home. They would also work agriculturally, to be sure. They weren't all highly educated, but many were highly educated. So they were, they were often put in charge of certain aspects, particularly of a wealthy household. The wealthier you were, the more slaves you had. It was a common understanding and scenario at the time. Jesus just lifts it up. He doesn't, he doesn't render any moral verdict on it. He just merely takes what is common in the day that they would understand, and he, and he proposes a scenario here, just a scenario. Here's the scenario. The scenario is who is the faithful and wise, that's the idea of sensible slave. There's going to be two outcomes here. You judge which one is the wise and sensible one. The master of the household is going to put this slave, he's going away for a long time, and he's going to put this slave in his absence in charge of making sure the other slaves get fed, that they eat. I think implicit in the idea of, ma- of making sure they eat is, is that they are, this slave is now in, a, in authority over the other household slaves. Okay? The, the, the responsibility to make sure they're fed is a way to say that you're in authority over their, over their needs. He has put this slave in charge of the household, and and he is going away on a long journey. Interesting. Jesus is going away on a long journey too, isn't he? What he says here, what he proposes here for us to, to consider is that in this scenario, there are going to be two diametrically opposite Results, responses by the slave that has been put in authority, by this imaginary slave. And what he's going to say is, is, is that the way this turns out, it, it illustrates, it elaborates on what it means to be alert. This is a concrete illustration in the, couched in the, in the, in the, culture and history of its day so that they will understand what does it mean to be continually on the alert. Okay. So there's two responses here. 
The first response is of the wise slave. The wise slave. The sensible slave, right? The faithful, sensible slave. The wise slave, verse 46, is is characterized by faithfully serving. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. He put him in charge of a task. The task was to care for the needs of the other household slaves. Blessed is the one who is found doing what he was given to do when the master returns from the long journey. This slave is the alert one. This slave is the awake one. This slave is the ready one. He is ready for the master's return. He's not sitting in a window, gazing out, saying, you know, gee, I wonder if the master will come today. He is involved, actively involved in caring for others. And when the master returns and finds him at his work, doing what he was given to do, serving, caring for the others, then the master says that he is blessed, right? Verse 46, blessed is that slave. That is the same uh, word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed. He, He speaks repeatedly of those who are blessed. The idea is eternally happy. Blessed, eternally happy, are those who are faithfully serving the Lord. That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And he spells out in different areas, in different ways. He says here, same thing. Blessed, eternally happy, are those found about the master's business when the master returns. They are faithfully serving. They are the wise slave. And for that, verse 47, they are greatly rewarded. Truly, Notice the sobriety of his statement here. Truly I say to you. When Jesus says that, we're supposed to like sit up and take notice. Okay, this is the time if you're, if you're uh, a little drowsy at the moment here to sit up straight. Okay. Truly, pay attention, listen up, don't miss it. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. What it means is he's going to get a promotion. That which was temporary will now become permanent. He will put him in charge, it says, of all his possessions. His, his, his area of responsibility and authority will grow. Now, you might think, well, what kind of reward is that? How about, blessed is he found doing the master's will when he returns, he will go into retirement. And live on a pension the rest of his life. He doesn't say that. He says, faithfulness in this brings greater enlarged responsibilities, enlarged authorities. Beloved, that's a gift. That's a reward. (laughs) We're so messed up. We're so messed up. You know, the way we see work is messed up. We like work until you don't have to. As opposed to seeing work as something good and godly and given by God. And and a capacity for work is a gift of God. Get used to it. You're going to be working in the millennium. And into the eternal state. Okay? Love it. Love it. It's what God made you to do. It's going to be great because it's not going to be defiled by sin anymore. Okay? So... Faithfully serving, what do you get? You get a place for greater impact for good. 
I think in keeping here with the, with the basic eschatological theme, what, it, what it's saying is that in the kingdom, I think that's ultimately what he is saying here, is you will be brought into the kingdom, and in the kingdom you will have a place of greater authority, greater service, opportunity to do greater good. Remember Jesus says to the, uh, to the apostles, right? They say, you know, hey, we've given up everything for you. What about us? And he says, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Show yourself faithful in this life, faithful in little, faithful in much. You're going to get a promotion in the millennium. You could end up the mayor of Upland. (laughs) Or more. Greatly rewarded. Now, Conversely, what if the imaginary slave, rather than acting wisely, plays the part of the fool? What happens to him then? So we have the foolish slave, right? The foolish slave, verses 48 to 50, he is faithlessly preoccupied. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour which he does not know. I mean, the basic idea here is that the slave says, hey, you know what? I don't know when he's coming. A lot of time. Yeah, he's coming. He told me he's coming. But I don't know when it's going to be. And you should have seen the size of the suitcase he took. He's going to be gone a long time. So there's no sense of urgency here. I got plenty of time to do the master's will. But in the meantime, in the meantime... There's stuff that I want to do. And so, and so he, he begins to act out on his own sinful, selfish impulses. Now, the imagery here, the, the imagery of violence and carousing, uh, the, the commentators tell us, I think they're right here, is just a, it's a picture of depravity. It's not specifically, well, you know, the guy drank too much and the guy, you know, was violent or whatever. He's just saying that these things characterize those who are engaged in depravity, those who are engaged in in fulfilling their base desires. And so that's what he does. He fills his life with self-indulgence. He pursues wicked passions. He, he gives no thought to the sudden, possible sudden return of his master, right? Hey, he's gone. But the master comes. The master comes. Notice verse 50. The master of that slave will come, notice it, on a day and at an hour. Where did I hear that before? Oh, wait a minute. I heard that over in verse 36. But of that day and hour. It's, he's, he's linking back. On a day, at an hour, when he doesn't expect and he doesn't know, it is going to come. And when the master comes, it will be too late to change. It will be too late. And the response of the master will be dreadful. Look at verse 51. The foolish slave, he's faithlessly preoccupied, verses 48 to 50. 51, he is gruesomely punished. Gruesomely punished. And he will cut him in pieces. Literally dismember him. Now the Jews didn't really practice that sort of punishment. I I think the language here is intentionally graphic. I think think it's got a heightened sense of of gruesomeness in order to catch our attention. 
It will be hacked in pieces when the master returns. And assigned a place, sent to a place, appointed a place with the hypocrites. Appointed a place with the hypocrites. Now, isn't that interesting? Where do do hypocrites come into all of this? Well, here's the interesting thing. In Matthew's gospel, to be a hypocrite is about the the worst thing there is. To be the religious hypocrite, to, to be the one who professes allegiance to God, to his word, and to his Messiah, and then act in ways contrary to that is to be the hypocrite. It is the realm of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they receive the severest denunciations. They are the embodiment of the foolish slave. They are the very ones that are in authority and are abusing their fellow countrymen. They'll be assigned with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, I won't take the time to track it down with you. If you've got my notes, you can follow them yourself or you can just look it up in a concordance. But in Matthew's gospel, every time that expression is used, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it is referring to the judgment of those who do not go into Messiah's kingdom. To those who do not enter the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of peace and blessing. Those who are outside or in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's used over and over again. It is to speak of judgment. So, how do you boil it all down? What's the big idea here, right? The big idea, what Jesus is saying here, is that we are to expect his return. And we are to demonstrate that we are expecting his return by being engaged in serving and ministering to other people. To live a life that is outside of ourselves. To live a life that is not self-absorbed. To live a life that is not preoccupied with the pursuit of our own worldly pleasures and passions. It is to be a life given to the care and service of other people. For those who are living that life, demonstrating by their works the faith that exists in their heart. And by the way, that's exactly going to be the point in the sheep and goat judgment. Demonstrating the reality of their commitment to the Messiah by their active work in the things of the Messiah. For them, they will enter into his kingdom and receive from him the rewards of which are greater opportunities of service. This wonderful picture. But for those who deny his return by their self-absorption, they face nothing but a terrifying judgment outside of the kingdom. That's the message. That's the point. Okay, let's, let's take a few minutes and let's talk about applying it. Let's talk a little bit about applying what's really a pretty simple message. This is not exhaustive. These are not prescriptive. These are some suggestions, some things to consider. Some ways to properly focus our lives on the, in light of the return of Christ. So I got, I don't know how many of them I got. I have nine of them. So we're going to move through them fast. Here they are. First, think and talk about the second coming often. 
think about the second coming often, talk about the second coming often. Make it a part of your theology. Shoot over with me to uh, 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I think the notes, I don't think I know, the notes uh, said 1 John chapter 2, but that was not right. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Notice what Jesus says here, beloved. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. John says, fix your hope on him who is coming and it will purify you. It will purify you. To think and talk about the return of Christ has a purifying effect Upon us, it, it, it serves to refocus our lives. It serves to cause the, the things of this world, both some that are good and some that are less than good, that can often overwhelm us, it causes them to recede in significance. We keep our eye on the return of Christ. So think and talk about it. Secondly, read the scriptures with an eye towards the second coming. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that, that little phrase, in that day, remember that? I said, get your antenna up for in that day. Because when you, when you start looking for that expression, you are going to find it all over the Bible. All over the Bible. In that day. What day? The day of the Lord, which eventuates in the return of Messiah. So it will speak about in that day as a time of judgment. It will speak of that, time, of that day as a day of blessing. The broad and narrow day of the Lord. But just as you read your Bible, that's a way to continue to think about the second coming. Recognize this, that the, that, the, that the return of Christ is central to the message of the Bible. You understand that? The return of Christ is absolutely essential and central to the, to the message of the Scriptures. It did not end at the cross. So read the Scriptures with an eye to that. Third, Pray regularly about the second coming. Make it part of your prayer time. Pray that God would increase your longing for the return of Christ. Pray that God would help you clear away distractions. I love the way Paul ends his letter in 1 Corinthians. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Here's a church that was distracted. If any church was distracted, the church at Corinth was distracted. Notice how Paul ends this. He says, the greeting, of verse 21, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Develop a longing for the return of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. That's how John ends Revelation, right? The very end of the book of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make it part of our prayers. Fourth, 
Can we look to be reminded about the, the rewards and judgments associated with the second coming? Back to 1 John chapter 2. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. There's a difference of opinion here as to whether that's speaking about uh, those that shrinking away in shame are believers who are, who are ashamed at the coming of the Lord because he finds them occupied with things that they should not be occupied with or whether it's a statement that they are actually not his, which is actually where I'm inclined to fall. So the shrinking away in shame here is, I believe, speaking about those that when he's returned, although they have professed to be his, the reality is they are not. But in either case, there is something, um, something cleansing about being reminded with some regularity that there is reward to be had and there is judgment coming. It, it sort of sharpens the mind. Five. Engage in Christian community. Engage in Christian community. Why? For the purpose of encouraging and being encouraged, Right? Hebrews chapter 10. By the way, this, this, is, this is one compelling reason why you need to be part of a small group. Pick it up in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Notice that one another. We need, we need to see, we need to think about, we need to work at how to stimulate each other to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can't stimulate one another to love and good deeds unless you are in a close enough relationship where you, you have that intimacy that would allow you to do that. You need to be there. So engage in Christian community. Six. Remind yourself and others that you will never find true satisfaction in this life. You need to continually tell yourself that. I am not going to find what my heart longs at its deepest level in this life. It just can't be had. It's not that it's hard to get. It's not that only one or two people get it. Nobody can get it. It's not available. It's not possible. You cannot fulfill the purpose for which you were created. The very longings, the deepest longings of the human heart cannot be fulfilled in this world by relationship, by material good, by, by social position, by anything, by health, or no matter what it is, it will not satisfy. It cannot satisfy. It is a fool's errand. And all of us fall prey to the foolishness with great regularity. Great regularity. We need to be reminded, continually reminded, and we need to remind each other. Why? Because we all have spiritual amnesia, I guess. We're, we're continually forgetting these things. Man, if I could just get... <clears throat> fill it in. Right? Just get mm, something. 
a relationship that I don't have, material possession that I don't have, a job that I don't have, a bank balance that I don't have. I mean, you name it, right? If I could just get that. It's a fool's errand. Can't have it. And in fact, the pursuit of it will put one on the path of the foolish slave. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. Our friend Abraham. Verse 9, by faith Abraham lived as an alien in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for something beyond this life. He knew. He was never going to get ultimately what he wanted, what he needed, and what had been promised in this age. Seven. Actively engage in serving others. Kind of goes without saying, I suppose. Constantly reminded of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, where he says, for even the Son of Man. You get that? For even the Son of Man. Listen, if anybody had a right to be served, it would be the Son of Man. And he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve. And give his life a ransom for many. If the Messiah, King, comes to to serve rather than be served, then those who are recreated in his name must also seek to serve. It's our marching orders. It's the way we demonstrate our paternity, our, 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 our family identity. So eight, what does that mean? Well, it means this, I think. I think it means to teach your children by example... The joys and heartaches of serving. There is great joy in serving, and there is tremendous heartache in serving. If you if you believe that by serving others all you'll find is joy, then that's not reality. God's sheep have sharp hooves. We serve. And we do find joy in it, to be sure, but, but ultimately we serve as a faith endeavor because we're looking for something beyond it, right? We're looking for that city beyond. So be realist in your own life and with your children, moms and dads. If you're raising your kids, get your kids involved in serving other people. That's wonderful. But, but don't present a picture to them that, you know, when you serve, that, you know, you're going to get all this stuff back and people are going to tell you how good you are and uh, how, you know, how they really love you and appreciate you. And some will. And then others will uh, turn around and spit in your face. And that's all part of it, too. That's all part of it, too. When we serve without thought of what we will receive in return in this life, then we emulate Christ. And we demonstrate our hope in the life to come. And finally, since Jesus talks about it, I'll talk about it, too. Matthew chapter 6. Invest financially in the age to come. Invest 
financially in the age to come. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? There's your heart also. So we demonstrate that we are awake, that we are alert to the return of Christ. We are expecting the unexpected when we are investing financially in the age to come. That it's a priority in our lives. Notice there's, there's no set amounts given. Because it's a measure of the heart. It's a measure of the heart. Well, beloved, these, uh, these passages aren't always fun. But they're always helpful. May God, use his, by his spirit, use his word today to purify us. May he comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is always timely. Even though this is an ancient book, it is a living book because your spirit is alive. And he is the one who, who brought this, this living book into existence and he is the one who resides within his people and he is the one who who makes this book alive to his people. It is that mysterious, amazing work of grace, Father. Thankful for it. How often our hearts stray. How, how easy it is to get sidetracked. How regularly we need to, to be readjusted, to be refocused. So, Lord, may you do it in us this morning. It's not about being beat up. It's not about feeling bad. Father, there's... There's sin in all of us and plenty to go around. Praise to be for the gospel of Jesus Christ where our sin is forgiven. Praise be that the path of life is laid before us so we can walk in it. Father, I pray this morning for those that are out here in this congregation who do not know the Savior. They have not given their heart to him. They are are not personally united to him in faith. He is not their Lord. And ask you to fill their hearts with faith. Strip away the blinders, whatever it is that's holding them back. Whatever they think is going to give them that joy in life is a fool's errand. Oh Lord, humble them. And then lift them up through the cross of Christ. Do your good work. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.